you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It is Tuesday, January 14th, 2020. But this is a podcast. You all know this. You can listen to it anytime, right, D? Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, the guy knows stuff. As we do... <laughs> As we do with all our bonus features, I ask our distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. It's me, Danny Brozowski. I just want to make a note here that Ben had me introduce myself because he cannot pronounce my name. <laughs> That's correct. That is correct. So, uh, I am chair of the LaSalle County Democratic Party, and I'm running for Congress in Illinois 16. Yeah, that is correct. Uh, and uh, I cannot pronounce her name. I can pronounce the first name, Danny. Hello. That's good. Solid start. <laughs> all right. So before we take the deep dive and all the issues of the day, uh, help people out with that last name. Uh, first of all, spell it and then spell it phonetically. Yeah. Or no, pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Yes, all right. go ahead. Uh, so it's B as in boy, R, Z as in zebra, O, Z as in zebra, O, W, S as in Sam, K, I. Uh, and the only way to pronounce it is with a whole lot of practice. It's Brozowski. Just keep listening. All right. I, I have to point out uh, that Danny Pogoshelski, uh, who's a regular in this show, uh, does the um, uh, political know-it-all segment once a month or so, came on. He goes, Ben, you got to have Danny on. You got to have Danny on. So I reached out to Danny, uh, and here she is. All right. You're running for Congress in the 16th Congressional District. First, let's start with some basics. Tell folks where the 16th Congressional District is. Yep. So the 16th is all or parts of 14 counties just west of the suburbs. So touches the Wisconsin border on the north side, Winnebago and Boone, where Rockford is. Sweeps down DeKalb all the way around to the south side of the city, actually touches the Indiana border as well. Gets as close to the city as like sort of southwest Will County. Mm, God, it's always like curves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a pain. Uh, uh, and uh, that's a lot of uh, territory to cover. And it is currently the seat, the congressional seat is currently held by a Republican. Is that not true? That is true. And that Republican's name is? Adam Kinzinger. And uh, it would be a great victory for the Democratic Party, uh, to put it mildly, if you were successful in defeating Mr. Kinzinger. Am I correct about that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You know, we have um, we have run candidates, certainly. And last cycle, we made some we made some inroads. So we had a, a great nominee last cycle, Sarah Dady, who laid a lot of groundwork for a progressive candidate to run this cycle. Um, Sarah's a friend to our campaign, and I campaigned for her in my capacity as chair. And in fact, even before I was elected as chair of the party, She's wonderful. Um, and this is, you know, this is a campaign that has really built on some of her success and taken it to the next level. So I think we're going to do it. All right. Uh, and uh, we're, I'm going to take the deep dive in all those issues. Uh, and 
talk about the Sarah Dady campaign of 2016, or excuse me, 2018, why you think Kinzinger is vulnerable, uh, what it says about the Democratic Party if uh, you were uh, to be successful, where the Democrats have to go to win counties like your own. Before we do that, just introduce yourself to people. Tell a little bit about who you are and how you got to this point where you're running for Congress. Cool. So I'm an Army brat. My family uh, you know, kind of lived all over the place. I grew up here, there, and everywhere. I was born in Kansas, lived in Germany for a long stretch, and we moved to LaSalle County, which is right in the middle of the district in the late 90s. Um, I went to Purdue, graduated from LP High School, of course, in the district. LP, um, it stands for? LaSalle, Peru, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, non-local listeners. Um, went to Purdue, I lived here in the city, in Chicago, for about 10 years, and I went home in 2015. And I, you know, my background, my professional background is in nonprofit management, but my entire adult life has been dedicated to service, right? To volunteerism and philanthropy. And I went home for a lot of practical reasons, but also because I saw an opportunity to give back to a community that had given me a great deal. So I came home, served on a whole bunch of civic and philanthropic boards. I opened a small business um, and I started going to party meetings. And I started- Party being Democratic Party. Yep, Democratic Party meetings. So. The LaSalle County Democrats is an organization, you know, a democratic organization that like many of our peers demographically was built on the backs of labor. Um, I don't come from a labor family. I don't come from a union family. Like I said, my dad was in the army. And so my familiarity with labor when I initially moved home was really, really low. I just had, you know, I had no idea who these guys were, what they were working toward. And it happened so quickly that I realized how closely aligned our values were. So. You may remember that President Trump was elected in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, And when that happened, I had been going to party meetings for, I guess, the better part of a year. And, you know, the party was kind of stagnant. There wasn't much going on. We had, we weren't really losing ground in the county. We hadn't for a while, Um, but we also weren't gaining any, right? The party didn't have much visibility. We just didn't, we weren't super active. Um, And so when President Trump was elected, as happened in county parties all over the country, all of a sudden there were all of these people showing up, right? There were, you know, women, bum, 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 we need a sound effect there. Um, so there were women, there were, you know, sort of all sorts of all sorts of people showing up who hadn't been around before. And one of the things that had frustrated me in my experience with the party up until that point was that I would often go to these meetings and leave feeling like I, I didn't have a task to do, right? Like I was angry, but there was no path to activism. And so when all of these people started turning out post the 2016 election, I was not the only person in the room who felt that. And so with the encouragement of a whole bunch of local labor guys, I ran for chair and won. And so I take my commitment to, and my, you know, my sort of obligation to labor really, really seriously. It was with their support and encouragement and in fact their votes that I became chair of the party. And they are just such a huge part of the reason I decided to run for Congress. Uh, there, so there's a strong labor uh, culture in the 16th Congressional District? Yeah, for sure. We're really lucky to still have relatively high union density. We've got a whole bunch of really active locals. Um, and those guys are my people in so many ways. Well, uh, I share that people with you. If, as I said to you before we went on the show, I would not have a show if it wasn't for sponsoring unions. So God bless unions. Uh, all right. Uh, why Democrat? Why not Republican? Your dad... 
uh, was in the army. Was your mother in the army as well, or is just your dad? Okay, just my dad. Your dad was in the army. Uh, if I was dealing with social stereotypes, I would say, oh, uh, then you would be a Republican because the social stereotype is that military uh, people are Republican, uh, and mi- military people from LaSalle County are Republican. That would be the social stereotype. So explain why you became a Democrat and why that social stereotype is inaccurate to begin with. Yeah, so I don't really know what the statistics are for military and, you know, partisanship, but certainly in my family, there was always more nuance than that. Um, My dad today, gosh, we have the most interesting conversations about politics because you might expect him to be relatively far right. And certainly in some ways he is, but there are other places where he is wildly far left and in fact, even further left than I am. Um, So my family was never sort of strictly Republican or Democrat. We didn't grow up extraordinarily political. Um, I was probably in college before I sort of like, you know, really dug into what my personal politics were. But for me, the idea of equality and justice, of serving the greater good, that was always sort of the baseline values that I was approaching politics with. And so you said your dad has some issues. He's to the left of you. What are some of those issues? Could that give me an idea of what Democrat issues Democrats could tap to be successful with voters like your dad? Yeah, well, I don't know if we're, I don't know if my dad is the best, you know, best sort of case study for this. But um, so my dad is relatively conservative when it comes to things like immigration. He is pretty centrist when it comes to social justice issues, really conservative on economic issues. Um, but for example, when it comes to things like destigmatizing mental health, he's super far left, um, defense spending, super far left, gun control. He's like, I've never heard anybody with the kind of ideas that my dad has for how we control access to firearms. Wow. Your dad shatters all stereotypes across the board. Yeah. My dad shatters a whole bunch of things. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, so when you take a look at the challenge of getting elected, uh, in the 16th Congressional District. What do you think that some of the strengths are, even if they're subterranean, if they're buried, if people don't know about them, what are some of the strengths that you could play on, uh, or any Democrat could play on to get elected in the 16th Congressional? Well, here's the thing. So Adam Kinzinger has been in office for almost 10 years. And if we're all being super honest, and you know your listeners are, are pretty well educated about this stuff in the first place, when these lines were drawn almost a decade, decade ago by the state legislature, they were drawn for a Republican, right? Gerrymandering is a very real thing. They're relatively open about it. Um, This district was drawn for a Republican, but 10 years is a really long time. And Adam Kinzinger has been in office, you know, for long enough that he's got a track record, not just of inaccurate and inadequate representation of the people of this district, but also for absenteeism. I think, you know, a lot has changed in the past 10 years. Think about where you were 10 years ago. Think about where this country was 10 years ago, right? Mm Everything is different. Certainly this district looks much, much different than it did a decade ago. Um, And I think, you know, as the political discourse in this country has gotten more hostile and less civil, I think people in districts like mine have just gotten really tired of it, right? They want representation that they can trust. They want representation that they feel like is looking out for their best interests. Kensinger just doesn't do that. So I think one of the big strengths that we play on is authenticity, right? I am not a person, I'm not like, whatever, I'm not wearing heels, you guys, I'm wearing like combat boots that I got from Target on clearance. I'm just like, I am, I am, what you see is what you get here, right? Mm -hmm. Ben's laughing, because it's true. Um, Sometimes my tights have a hole in them. Like, I'm just, what you are getting is authenticity here. And I think people relate to that. I think people appreciate it. 
I think even for people who differ from me on solutions to our very real, very tangible problems, I think even for those people, they recognize that I am sincere and that I'm going to be operating in good faith, mm -hmm. that in in the legislature, I'm going to be fighting for what I genuinely believe are the best solutions to the problems that plague us all. All right. Now, uh, I'm going to give you one of my pet peeves, get a response and reaction to this in terms of issues uh, in the 16th Congressional. I've been following very dutifully the de Democratic debates for president from the start. I'll be watching tonight. There'll be a debate. I'll be watching it uh, as well. I've watched every single debate, and I've followed in one particular issue, uh, health care the way it's been addressed by the Democratic Party in the debates. And one of the things that uh, people, the sort of the centrist faction uh, running for president, thinking of Amy Klobuchar in this group, Pete Buttigieg in this group, uh, Joe Biden in this group, uh, Bennett, I'm down to John Delaney. I can think of all these, God damn, these names are coming back to me from the past, Tim <laughs> Ryan. They all articulated this point of view. They were saying, we speak to real America when we say that folks in real America do not want uh, health care for all because they don't want to give up their private insurance. I've heard this, uh, Danny, I've heard this a million times from various uh, centrists. That's an exaggeration to underscore the point of how many times I've heard it. So the centrists. So what's your view on health care? And do you agree with the notion uh, promulgated by people like Amy Klobuchar, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Tim Ryan, et cetera, and so forth, that uh, running on a strong Medicare for all plan is a kiss of death in areas like the one you come from? Nope, disagree wholeheartedly. So there's great polling data out there that shows that all across America, depending on how we talk about it, right, that people all across America want universal coverage, they want a single payer system, and what they want is Medicare for all. We know that Medicare works, we know how to run it efficiently, we know how to run it effectively, we know how to run it to the great satisfaction of most people who receive services. Here's the thing, when people say that they are satisfied with their private insurance, what I think most often they're talking about is that they're satisfied with their provider, right? They're satisfied with their physician and with their nurse practitioner, with the people with whom they interact regularly. These people aren't sitting there thinking like, man, whatever, my insurance plan is so awesome. I, I feel a real emotional attachment to this insurance plan I have. That's just not human nature, right? And it's, it's not most people's experience with the private insurance industry. It just doesn't serve people as well as Medicare does. Mm -hmm. So uh, what's your plan? for healthcare. Yeah, so I'm Medicare for all without reservation. I'm Medicare for all sooner rather than later. I think Elizabeth Warren has a great rollout plan and you know there are certainly um, some nuances there that we're gonna need to work out, but I'm for working them out immediately. We know Medicare for all is the thing. We know it's the thing that the people want and the thing that the people need. Uh, and uh, I should also point out uh, that as we speak, the Republican Party, led by Donald John Trump, uh, and the Justice Department is supporting a lawsuit that would blow up the existing Obamacare that we have, which is n nowhere near uh, Medicare for all, Danny, and you know that as well as I do, but it's at least something that we have, but there, there's a lawsuit in Texas that's supported by, I'm not making this stuff up, this is the official position of the Justice Department under Donald Trump, this is the official position, therefore, of the Republican Party, and Adam Kinzinger is a member of the Republican Party, a loyal uh, supporter of Donald John Trump, so it's his apparently his official position as well. I have a hard time believing that the voters of the 16th Congressional District would want to support 
the obliteration of what little health care uh, we have. Am I right in assuming that about the voters of the 16th Congressional District? Yeah, I mean, in my experience, we talk about health care every single day on this trail. And the last thing I want is to dismantle the ACA, right? It is providing coverage to millions of people who didn't have it before. And we've got representation like Adam Kinzinger, who has voted against health care for the people of this district more than 60 times. It's not just some tacit agreement with President Trump or, you know, Kinzinger's voting record is something like 94, 95 percent um, in accordance with the Trump agenda. But it's not, you know, when you get out there and you're voting. So a couple of weeks ago, it came up the um, pharmaceutical costs, right? Capping pharmaceutical costs and allowing Medicare to negotiate pharma prices. Mm-hmm. Who votes against that? Kinzinger. Lots of Republicans, right? And that's despite the fact that we know that big pharma, that, you know, the cost, the rising cost of pharmaceuticals is easily a bipartisan issue, right? This is something that Everybody talks about Republicans, Democrats, independents. Everybody talks about it. It's terrible. It's heartbreaking. You hear just the worst stories all the time about how, you know, people who can't afford insulin are, you know, trying to ration it for themselves and dying literally every day. This stuff is awful. And yet we've still got we've still got legislators who are voting in accordance with party lines. That's I mean, that's wrong. Right. That's that is it's such a failure of the party. And it's such a, you know, it's such a failure. It's a moral failure, right, for these representatives who are doing such a disservice to the people of their districts. Uh, and then, uh, all right, so we move from that to uh, the climate issue. It's another issue where my friends of the centrist persuasion uh, are trying to tell me that voters in your district, voters in areas like yours, uh, are very cautious about any candidate who uh, talks about taking a uh, progressive uh, an immediate uh, position on trying to reduce the amount of pollutants uh, that will, they say it would hurt the economy. Uh, and so Ben, do not push too hard on this issue. I'm just telling you what people of the centrist persuasion say. You could hear them say this at any debate uh, when the discussion of the Green New Deal comes up. So what's your stand on that, on, on the issue of climate? Yeah, so I think I would say three things. The first is that, you know, when we talk about climate, which comes up all the time, climate crisis comes up in the district all the time. And over the course of the past five years that I've been really active in politics, you know, I think it was it was a little bit concerning because it felt like the climate crisis was going to be an issue that motivated young voters. And perhaps that was it. And there's been a market shift over the course of those five years. And now everybody is concerned about the climate crisis because it has gone from seeming sort of hypothetical and maybe in the distant future to a thing that is happening right now to all of us, right? It feels much more urgent than it did. Um, And the reason I think is, look at what happened this past growing season in communities like mine. So the 16th is a big district. There are lots of urban parts of it, certainly some suburban areas, but geographically, it's still a lot of rural, it's farmland, right? It's an ag, many of these communities are ag communities. And this past growing season, the climate crisis had a market effect on their ability, on farmers' ability to get crops in the ground, right? And then President Trump's tariffs really screwed them over, right? President Trump's tariffs really put farmers in a bad position. Um, So I think a lot of that perspective on how we approach the climate crisis comes from assumptions that are just not true, right? Come from assumptions that like farmers don't believe in climate change. It's just, that's not true, right? Farmers, perhaps more than anybody, see the very real, very tangible effects of climate change. They see it year over year when they're looking at their yields, when they're looking at dates they get crops in the ground and dates they can, you know, pull them out. 
farmers see that stuff, right? Their livelihoods depend on it. So I think that's one. The other thing is that in, you know, as we talk about the climate crisis, we don't just talk about that one thing. We talk about environmental justice in general, and we're talking about, you know, access to clean air, clean water, clean soil. So the 16th Congressional is a district where I think there are 14 Superfund sites already. Um, and this crazy report came out this fall. What it basically said was that the entire city of LaSalle, so this is the city where I grew up, city of 10,000 people, um, sort of at the juncture of I-80 and I-39, if you're trying to visualize this on a map. Mm -hmm. um, this is a city where, you know, it's the, I say city in quotes, because, you know, it's a town. Um, where the culture is such that, you know, everybody's got a home garden. We're all feeding our kids organic tomatoes. And this report came out this fall that basically said the entire city of LaSalle is an EPA Superfund site the whole time. So we're talking about generations of families that have been feeding their kids organic tomatoes out of the garden. And as it turns out, those tomatoes are toxic. And we've got a representative who literally every time he has been given the opportunity has voted against funding for the EPA. Wrong, right? Wrong. So to think about you know the environmental issues and the perspective on environmental issues in a district like mine, you know these are people who have really real experiences with this stuff, right? Clean. I mean, certainly clean water comes up all the time. There's fracking in the district. There's. I mean, it, it, this stuff is this stuff is really real for the constituents here. The other thing that I want to point out is that we have issues-based polling data. And one of the pieces of information that I really like, because I think it, it's symbolic of so many things, I think it really gives some insight into a vein of progressivism in the district that has heretofore been untapped, um, is there was um, some polling done maybe a year or two ago related to the climate crisis and how we address it. And 54% of people in my district are for a carbon tax. I mean, you know that this is something that lots of Democrats don't <laughs> yeah. even show up for, right? Because it seems a little too progressive. Um, and our campaign is for a strong corporate carbon tax, absolutely. So how would a carbon tax work? What do you mean, how would it work? I mean, we hold corporations accountable for their emissions. Corporations, not individuals, right? We certainly don't wanna, um, you know, insofar as we're able to avoid regressive taxation, we wanna do that. Um, but corporations can and should afford it. We actually were talking in the car on the way here this morning about some other sort of more creative mechanisms that we can employ to hold corporations accountable for their environmental consequences. Um, and we've been batting around this policy idea where we can um, sort of on the front end, upfront, you know, require corporations to invest in environmental consequence insurance, right? So that as corporations, you know, face the effects of their behaviors, right? Face the environmental consequences of their behaviors. We're holding them accountable upfront mm -hmm. because you look at something that's, you know, look at X, Exxon, right? And decades, right? Decades of poor environmental behavior, no accountability, next to no transparency. And we don't, we don't really have much, right? Yeah. We don't really have much by way of mechanisms that we can hold them accountable for their past actions. We need to figure out policies so that we can do that on the front end. Or I can just hear the uh, tech ad. I can hear it. I can hear it in my mind. I've been doing this for a long time, Danny. 
Are, are you going to do it? Let's hear the attack ad. Uh, Danny Brozowski hates corporations. Danny Bro, You just said it. <laughs> she hates corporations. No, it, they won't say corporation. <laughs> Danny Brozowski, whose name I just mispronounced. Yeah, you were, it was okay. It, it was, was close. Okay. It was okay. I kind of swallowed it. Danny Brozowski, uh, whose name is really hard to pronounce. But it's really funny that Ben Jarofsky, whose name is also hard to pronounce. Anyway, I, I'm getting on a tangent from my commercial. Uh, a job killer. That's what they would say. Job killer, Danny. Uh, so how do you deal with that? How do you, they treat voters, this is me talking, not you, Danny. They treat voters like voters are idiots. Okay, that's, I've been watching this my whole life. Here in the city of Chicago, they double down on this stuff in the city of Chicago. But I, the rhetoric, Donald Trump talks about it all the time. You know, job killing Democrats, uh, hate anti-business Democrats. It's just part of his rhetoric. It's, he puts it out in his tweets all the time. So are you worried about going forth and, and meeting the public? Like the public hears that. They get the brochures in the mail. I'm sure Adam Kinzer is not going to lay down. He's going to be sending this stuff out, bombarding the airwaves with it. Uh, maybe if he's in trouble, Donald Trump will send in a tweet or two uh, and they'll say job killer. How do you deal with that? Yeah, you know what? So I think I have a little bit more faith in the electorate than it sounds like you might. Because <laughs> I'm older than you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I think I think about things like that. So I owned a small business for a period of a few years. I've done a lot of work um, in the economic development sphere. I served on the board of the LaSalle Business Association, which is like our chamber of commerce for a number of years. I have, a, a, I think, a fair amount of perspective when it comes to this. And I would say a couple of things. Number one, I'm for job creation, certainly, particularly when it comes to sustainable infrastructure and clean energy jobs. I think we have a tremendous opportunity in a district like mine to start you know, making up for some of that manufacturing job loss that we've seen over the course of decades. Um, but the other thing is that you know, I'm for incentivizing small business development. I think one of the big mistakes that we make when it comes to economic development is that often we're thinking about short-term solutions, but the truth is this is a long-term problem. Um, economic development in communities like the ones that exist throughout my district really requires A, long-term solutions, and B, a diversity of investment, right? You can't just say, well, let's, you know, let's re try really hard to get this one manufacturer to come to town because then what happens when that manufacturer leaves, right? What happens if, what happens, so in my district, Mendota, Illinois, Del Monte was there. Well, one day Del Monte decided the tariffs were too much and they were out of there. It was hundreds of people, families whose livelihood was just gone. We can't rely solely on a single corporation or manufacturer or a single anything, right? to be the sustainable, the sustaining source for our entire local economy. That's just, it's unrealistic and it's short-sighted. Uh, and so you mentioned jobs. Is that your, sort of the, the chief uh, issue on your, on your plate? Do you think that's the most, that's the issue that resonates with people the most in the 16th Congressional? Yeah, so we talk about, we talk about a handful of things literally every day. Um, jobs, how we get them, how we keep them, how people are treated on the job, education, how we pay for our kids' education when so many of us are you know, paying off our own education still. Mm -hmm. We talk about healthcare, what happens if our family faces a healthcare crisis. And we talk about the environment, right? And it's that, that conversation is, does any of this other stuff even matter if we're not building a sustainable future for ourselves? One thing you haven't talked about that's not on the, on the list that you just rattled off is impeachment. Uh, as we speak, uh, Donald Trump is facing an impeachment trial. I'm not sure when Nancy Pelosi is going to send the articles over to the Senate, but she, one of these days she will, I presume. Uh, and, uh, 
you didn't mention that, and this is something else that my friends of the centrist persuasion tell me, that impeachment is not an issue uh, that would be a successful one for Democrats in districts like your own. I've had so many people tell me this, Ben. We shouldn't, uh, the Democratic Party should not articulate uh, impeachment forcefully, that it doesn't work in swing districts in Michigan and Wisconsin. And uh, that, in fact, turn off voters. That voters in Wisconsin and Michigan swing districts, and I presume the 16th is sort of like in that general category, uh, want Believe, still believe in the notion of bipartisanship. It's hard for me to get this out without laughing, Danny. Uh, I've not seen any evidence whatsoever that there's any Republican in the country that wants bipartisanship. So I don't know how Democrats can advocate bar- bipartisanship if there's no buy in the buy, if you get what I'm saying. Um, but so impeachment, what's your view on impeachment? So can we pause real quick? Because I want to address that bipartisanship thing real quick, because I think that's super important. Um, what I hear all the time from people in my district and what I talk about a lot, sort of a, a drum that I have been banging for a long time is civil discourse. And I think often when we're talking about bipartisanship, when you know voters are talking about it, they're not talking about whether Representative Kinzinger and Congresswoman Lauren Underwood are having chummy conversations, because I don't think that's happening. But we have a nascent Republicans for Danny group I'm a progressive, right? I've been super clear about that. These are not people who you would think share my values, but they're people who, to my point earlier about authenticity, are getting on board for two reasons. One, because they believe that I'm sincere, that I'm trustworthy, and that I'm genuinely out here looking out for their best interests. But two, these are people who feel like their conservative values have been left behind by a party that has chosen a path that has diverged markedly from those conservative values, right? These are people who remember a Republican Party, you know, from like my childhood that just doesn't exist anymore. Um, So I think I think civil discourse, I think bipartisanship, I still think that stuff is possible. And I actually think that it's really important in districts like mine. What I hear all the time from people, and I think the reason impeachment doesn't come up is they just don't, you know, that hostility and the hatred, the tension, it's exhausting, right? You turn on the news and it's like, I'm tired, man. (laughs) I think everybody feels that, you know, I don't know if you've seen some of these statistics about like um, mental health issues in the Trump era. But I mean, therapists are doing great, right? And it's because this stuff is heavy and it's hard. And it's hard to be living in America at a time when tensions are so high here, right? Domestically, tensions are so high. And this is to say nothing of like all the stuff that's going on abroad. But here, tensions are so high. And we, you know, we expect that we're going to go outside and like duke it out with our neighbors over our white picket fences. But That's in my district. That's just not anybody's experience. I mean, I was knocking doors this past weekend in Marseilles, which is a small town in the eastern portion of LaSalle County. And I was knocking on, you know, Republican doors, Democrat doors. I'll talk to anybody. Campaign manager Dave gets really like annoyed at the amount I talk to Republicans, (laughs) I think. Um, So but, you know, I'm out here and I'm knocking on these doors and nobody's like slamming doors in my face. Nobody's like swearing at me or like giving me MAGA hats at the door. Like none of that (laughs) stuff is happening. Like people, you know, people are willing to have conversations. Uh Even when we, even when we disagree, they're willing to have conversations. And that's something that's super important to me. I, um, I guess about a year ago, I received an invitation to attend the revival of the tea party in LaSalle County. And I don't, listeners do not be concerned. The tea party is not being revived. Most places, this was an anomalous LaSalle County thing, I think. Um, but I got invited to this, debate. It was under the auspices of a debate, though it turned out to be something a little bit different. But 
I decided to go because I really believe in civil discourse. I really do believe that when we all sit down at the table in good faith with open hearts and open minds, that we're going to find more places that we are close together than we are far apart. I believe that to be true. I believe that even if we disagree about, you know, the way we get to solutions to our mutual problems, even if at the end of a conversation we come down to a values difference, that as long as we're all operating in good faith, that we can do that in a way that's respectful and occasionally even productive. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not the case, I guess, with the Tea Party debate, but I went there hoping that was going to be true. What happened? Oh, gosh, what happened? Um, what happened was there was a great deal of yelling. Um, there was some name calling. I called nobody any names. because People called you names. People called me names, yep. Um, baby killer, like out of the gate. Um, I presume I, you're for a woman's right to choose. Yep, I am ardently pro-choice, diehard feminist over here. Um, the, the Tea Party thing was, it was a really interesting exercise and it's kind of eye-opening for me. You know, I like I said, I believe in civil discourse, but it was a good reminder that the that piece that I said about operating in good faith, that not everybody does that. And to be super honest, sometimes I can be a little bit naive about that. I think, you know, everybody's operating in good faith and I have to I have to have reminders that that's not true. <laughs> I gotta tell you this right now. Now, I, I say this knowing that I can never get elected dog catcher anywhere, particularly in the 16th Congressional. But I really have a heart, I struggle with this, Danny, the notion of the bipartisan, I'll tell you why. I'll give you one example. Uh, when Barack Obama was elected president, Barack Obama's whole thing was there's no red America, there's no blue America. And it's just, excuse me, United States. It's just the United States. No blue states, no red states. And so he came up with his health care plan, which was straight out of Romney's book. Mitt Romney's plan. It was a Republican plan. He couldn't get one Republican in the House to support him. He had, oh boy, shock. The congressman from Peoria, Aaron Schock, he put him on the airplane. He put him on his, what's it called? The United States airplane? Air Force One. Air Force One. He put him on Air Force One to fly him in. He couldn't get an Illinois congressman his home state to support him with for a Republican plan and the Republicans used Obamacare uh, turning into this like communist threat which is such a joke because I'll repeat it again it was a Republican plan uh, as a weapon against Democrats and they successfully somehow or other got people to revolt against Democrats because of Obamacare now I struggling with this Danny I'm like where again is the bipartisanship here? The Democrats compromise on this important issue. Every lefty I know in the Democratic Party wanted Medicare for all, and they kept their mouth shut. President Obama said, "We can't. That won't get the votes. We have to go with this Romney care thing." Although he didn't call it, and he didn't get any Republican support. So, why do you have faith in the idea of bipartisanship, given? that example. Yeah, so I think what that example demonstrates is that there's a lack of bipartisan operation in the legislature, right? That doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the electorate. So the voters certainly want bipartisanship. You go out there and you know take a random sampling of voters and I would guess 80, 90% of them want bipartisanship. Nobody nobody who's out here voting wants everybody to just be parroting party lines, right? That's not what people want from their representation. That's what we've got. That's what the current political climate has 
sort of devolved into. That's not what it has to be. And I don't think that's what the voters want. All right. I, I'm suddenly feeling faith again. You oh, me. you guys, I convinced him. <laughs> Ben's a believer. Uh, I don't know, but I'm trying my best. Uh, I have this discussion all the time with my centrist friends, and I'm still, I just did a story today. I was talking about a race in New Jersey where uh, all it took, okay, there was a, uh, David Richter was his name, and he's a Republican, a lifelong Republican, and he was running against a guy named Jeff Van Drew. Uh, and all of a sudden, Jeff Van Drew flipped and became a Republican. And and all the Republicans immediately went from supporting Richter to supporting Van Drew because Trump told them to. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, the, the boss gave the, I mean, I make fun of Chicago aldermen. I mean, good God, the, the entire Republican party, Danny. Donald Trump snapped his fingers and they jumped. So, I, you know, I'm looking for bipartisanship and- Come knock doors with me. You know what? I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go up to LaSalle County with Danny. I'm gonna knock on some doors. Do it. Your faith in humanity will be restored. I guarantee it. All right. Now let's talk about uh, Don. Okay, I, I could use a little faith in humanity. It sounds like uh, it. Um, let's talk about <laughs> Donald. <laughs> Big Donald Downer over here. Uh, and uh, let's talk about uh, Donald Trump as an issue. Uh, oh God, people are all over the the map on this one in terms of districts like your own. Uh, some people say. You know, because he's popular. I think the district went for Trump in 2016. Am I correct on that? Yep, I did. About what? what? 16. By 16 point? Wow. Yep. So um, the the rule of thumb is that a Democrat running in a district like that, uh, it is incumbent upon them not to say negative things about Donald Trump. Do you subscribe to that notion? No, so you will find that there are not many notions to which I subscribe. Um, my So my approach on the Trump thing is, I never bring it up. I think that we as a party have, you know, perhaps made an error in the way immediately after the election of President Trump, we sort of wrote off every Trump voter as irredeemable. Um, I don't want to suggest that xenophobia and racism and misogyny don't exist or that they're not deeply problematic. They exist in my district. They exist all over the place. Um, and we need solutions for those things. But I don't think that the voters of the 16th congressional were a bunch of white supremacists just waiting for someone in a leadership position to don a white hood so they could bust theirs out. I think that for the most part, the Trump supporters in my district were Trump supporters because they felt like victims. They felt like Victims of a system that for a really long time has ignored them, has written them off. Victims of a, you know, of a party system that made so many assumptions about them. So many of those assumptions just patently untrue. And I talk to, I talk to Trump supporters pretty regularly and, you know, they're in two camps, right? They're either still on the Trump train or they have, you know, departed. Um, and for the ones who have departed, I, it's, it's really, it's a difficult conversation to have because they feel a whole host of really complicated feelings, right? They feel guilty and they feel regretful and they feel responsible and they feel hopeless. And what I tell them, I, I like analogies, and this is one that I really, really like that seems to resonate with folks who voted for Trump and now don't know what to do. And what I tell them is that, you know, you saw a system that was broken, a system that had failed you. And you've probably had the experience of a broken car stereo, a broken toilet in your house. Maybe you tried to fix it and you failed the first time. And if you fail to fix your toilet, you don't just live with a broken toilet for the rest of your life and like have people over and people are like, 
what's that? And you just say, it's my broken toilet. It doesn't, it just doesn't work. It's just broken. You go to the Home Depot and you buy a new part or you watch a YouTube video or you ask somebody who knows more than you do and you try to fix it again. Mm-hmm. And so those voters, you know, they tried to fix a system. Uh, you know, say what you will about President Trump, but one of the things that he did was he represented something that was a marked departure from what we had been doing before. And for voters who felt like they were being failed by the system before, President Trump looked like, you know, he looked like an option for their salvation. I I have a really hard time faulting them for that. And this is not to suggest that I am in any way a Trump supporter. Let's be super clear that I am not. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the people of my district, the voters who voted for President Trump, who recognize that that was a mistake, that that choice has not served them, I think they're ready to make a choice that will. All right, very good. And uh, are you taking the stand uh, in this current uh, Democratic uh, presidential primary? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we have this conversation all the time about, you know, whether it's worth having a conversation about in public about who we support. Um, I'm a progressive, and so I like progressive candidates. I'm also a feminist, and so I think it would be really nice to have a woman in office. Um, so you can sort of extrapolate from there, who, you know, who's, who's, whose team I'm on. Okay, let me figure it out. I'm a little slow, but I, even I could figure this one out. So you're a feminist. That would eliminate the male candidates. But you're a progressive, so that would eliminate... So it's Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Josephina Biden. Jo- Joe Biden. Josephina. Uh, anyway, I think I figured it out. Uh, that you know, I've uh, let me ask you the question of the day. We've been talking about this a lot today. Uh, we're on the eve now. As we do this interview, of course, it's Tuesday, so Lord knows we're going to be listening. But uh, tonight will be the debate in Iowa, and uh, as a prelude to that debate, there's been stories in the paper uh, about uh, a, a feud that's developing between the two members of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, at least in this campaign, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, with Elizabeth Warren saying that Bernie uh, had a, said to her in conversation a couple of years ago, a woman can't be elected uh, president of the United States, so don't run, I guess, vote for, you know, join my campaign, Bernie denying it. Uh, what's your uh, attitude about all that? You know, my attitude about that particular thing is that it's a distraction, right? If we didn't learn from the 2016 election that what we need to do is unite and not divide amongst ourselves, then we didn't learn much at all. I think that's, you know, one of the big lessons that we should have taken away. And so I don't pay much attention to that stuff. I I think that we should all sort of turn a blind eye toward it and discourage it from continuing to happen. All right, let's hope uh, Bernie and uh, Elizabeth Warren are listening to you and their supporters in Iowa who are losing their freaking minds. Are Bernie and Elizabeth Warren listeners of this podcast? Uh, I know, I I would be, if I had to put money on it, I'd say it'd be greater likelihood that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' faction is listening. But we love Elizabeth Warren voters too on the Ben Jarofsky show. So uh, I'd have to put my money on Bernie. We had Bernie's, uh, one of his good friends was on the show just uh, uh, last week. Larry Cohen was on the show. Mm-hmm. So he looked just like him. He was talking talk like him. <laughs> Didn't comb his hair yeah. like him. Man, it was a steady image. If you close your eyes, Dennis is saying, and listen to Larry, Larry, you were like, oh my God, is Bernie Sanders in the studio? $27. 
Anyway, that's my Bernie Sanders. That's me imitating Dennis imitating Bernie Sanders. It was good. That, it, we'll workshop it. <laughs> I don't know if that's that good. All right, let's hear yours. That's just really 10%. Yeah, I know. He's the real deal. Uh, Danny, is there anything you want to close with? Tell people about a, a event you have, your website, anything like that. Yeah, sure. So we've got, we're starting our town hall series for the next couple of months. We're, you know, Kinsinger ran in part on a platform of doing more town halls um, and has patently failed to do so. Um, so we're gonna pick up the slack. Um, so starting January 30th in Princeton, you can find out information on our website, it's dannyforillinois.com. But starting January 30th in Princeton at the Public Library there, we're gonna be doing our first town hall. Uh, we've got another one coming up on February the 8th. We're gonna do a whole bunch of them, one in um, probably every county in the district. You know, it's a, it's a big district, like I said, all are parts of 14 counties. Um, and the gerrymandering is a challenge, but we get around everywhere all the time. We've put a lot of miles on the car. Um, and I love that. I love getting around. I We have an ongoing joke in the campaign that every time we're in the car, I look around and I say, I love living here so much. It's so beautiful. Because um, I'm just like a Pollyanna, I guess. <laughs> but I do. I really do love getting around through the entire district. So starting January 30th in Princeton, uh, the website again is dannyforillinois.com. And Danny is spelled? D-A-N-I for F-O-R, Illinois, all spelled out, dot all right. com. Very good. Thank you much, Danny. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And that uh, will bring you back, I'm sure, uh, as the campaign uh, unrolls. It's It'd be amazing. It would be, I know Sarah Dady in the 2018 race, I got, she, I think she got about 40% of the vote, I want to say. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. A little more. Uh, and, um, you know, Lauren Underwood won, uh, Sean Caston won, a lot of Dems kind of look past the 16th, but I've had a lot of people from the 16th come on this show. Neil Muhammad's been on this show. Murray Breel's been on the show, Harlem Mamas. So I do believe the roots of a democratic victory are there. They have to be cultivated. That's my particular belief on that one. I think you're right. Let's do it together. All right. Very good, Danny. Uh, Appreciate you coming on the show. This is Ben Jarofsky, and this is another Ben Jarofsky bonus show. Take care, everybody. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.